thought we'd do a uh, Christmas sermon today. What do you think? Actually, today, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the sheer goodness of God, I get to preach sermon number 168 out of 168 in Matthew today. So we have come to the end of this gospel. Five years and two months ago, we began. We did a lot of other things in between, but we went verse by verse through this entire book. Now, a lot has happened in the last five years, if you think about it. Just think. Just here at Grace, people have gone home to be with Jesus in the last five years. People have met and gotten married in the last five years. Babies, lots and lots of babies have been born. Multitudes of babies have been born in the last five years here at Grace. And we've also had, what, seven different iPads in the last five years? Four generations, uh, an heir, and two minis. So... But we are finishing Matthew today. A lot of people have been asking me, what's next? You know, they want to know what I'm preaching next. And I love that question. I think that's a great question because it shows to me what I already know about Grace Orange. There's a hunger for the Word of God amongst the people here. There is an anticipation for getting into the Word of God. And, and so it's an awesome question. You know, what's next? And um, I'm sure you would probably like to know sometime in the near future. <laughs> so, the Lord willing, Lord willing, I will be unveiling that in, a, in coming weeks. Um, I have been planning out the preaching schedule for 2014, and I am very excited. I am very thrilled about it, about what, where God has led me on that. I'll give you a little hint. In the first half of the year, we'll go through about four or five books of the Bible, verse by verse. And then the last half of the year, we'll go through one book of the Bible. But in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) For now. So lots of people asking, what's next? And if you think about it, that's what Jesus' disciples were asking after the resurrection. What was next for the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead? So what we see today in Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is what is commonly known, what is universally known throughout the entire world, across the whole globe, as the Great Commission. That's what we're going to look at today. In fact, open your Bibles there, Matthew 28. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read these verses. But I want to ask this question today, and really this is what I'm going to ask, and the question I'm going to ask and answer in this sermon. What is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and what is its purpose? You know, everyone answers, well, it's the Great Commission, silly. Everyone knows that. I mean, even in your Bible, there's probably a heading right above verse 8, 16 that says, the Great Commission. Mine has it. But what if it was more than that? What if it was more than a commission? Of course, it's a commission. It's the marching orders for the church. But what if it was more than that? More than what you think is there. It's, it's like when you, you come to the Word of God and you look at a verse in the Bible and, and you say, oh yeah, I know what that says, I know what that means. And, and then someone says, do you know, look again. What else do you see? What observations can you make? What, what depths are there that maybe you didn't see at first glance? 
So this is more than marching orders. I want you to see this today, that, that the, the Great Commission, what is known as the Great Commission, is more than marching orders for the church, though it is definitely that. It's kind of like a hybrid car. It's, it's got more than gasoline driving it. There, there's, it, it there, there's more mileage. It takes you further. It's like a smartphone. It can do way more than we use them for. It exceeds expectations. So please stand with me. We're going to read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I've entitled this sermon, The Great C3. So obviously one of those C's is commission. Okay? All right, here we go. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we... We come to you today wanting to acknowledge you as Lord of all. I pray that we all have the freedom to do just that. But most likely there are some that are caught in all sorts of situations of life, that drug them down, and even feel like they're below the surface and gasping for air. Lord, I pray today for revived souls. I pray today for changed lives. Lord, I pray that your gospel would shine very brightly in this place, very clearly, very powerfully upon our hearts and our lives and our households and this church and out into the community and all across the globe for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I really like the idea of, of these verses being more than a commission because if indeed they are what I think they are, it makes it so much bigger. It makes the commission so much bigger. What I believe that, that these verses are is simultaneously at, at one time a conclusion, a covenant, and a commission. A conclusion to the whole gospel of Matthew a covenant where God is saying, this is what I am going to do, and here I'm, here's how I'm going to do it, and a commission. Marching orders for the church that assures Christ's church of His work in the world and their part in it. This should encourage your heart today that God is doing a work. He set His mission in motion long, long ago. We are invited into the work. But what these words are, are, are not just a tack on, in fact... One, one writer says that this passage is the climax of Matthew, and not only that, but the focal point of the New Testament, and not only that, but the focal point of all of Scripture. That these words summarize something that encapsulates everything that the Bible is about. 
So Matthew 28, 16-20 is simultaneously a conclusion, a covenant, and a commission that assures Christ's church of His work in the world and their part in it. Your part in it. My part in it. Our part in it. So first of all, let's look at C1. The idea of a conclusion. Now think of it this way. You come to the end of something and people usually close it with some appropriate words that kind of sum up what's been going on. What I see in this passage is no less than 10 themes that have been running all the way through Matthew's gospel. And because it's a, a conclusion of sorts, a summary of sorts, it makes the commission all the more weighty, all the more significant, all the more strong. So what I see in these verses is a summary of Matthew, this, this idea of following the king, following Jesus. It's a wrap-up, it's a review. Ten dominant themes. Let's just go through this passage and we'll look at each theme. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. He sends them to Galilee to the place where they have, were from, where they had spent a lot of time. It makes a lot of sense. But he goes to a mountain. Mountain is a huge theme in Matthew's gospel. You think immediately probably of the Sermon on the Mount. You might think of the Mount of Transfiguration. You might think of the Mount of Temptation. Where Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Mountain is a big theme in Matthew. So they went to a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Worship is the second dominant theme that we see in Matthew. When Jesus was born, people came to worship him from all nations. And he is worshipped by his disciples. He is worshipped by people he heals and people who see his miracles. He is worshipped by the women at the empty tomb. When they see him, they take hold of his feet and worship him. And here, when they come and see him, they worship him. So you've got mountain, you've got worship. And the third big theme I would, I would call out to you is the idea of faith. And you see it here in the word doubted. Some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, if that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? There's a lot of ways to take this. It could be that the, the 11 disciples were all there, and there were others, as Jesus put them, my brothers, as you see over in verse 10, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. That would be the bigger group of those who followed Jesus. So the 11, it could be that they were all worshipping him, and some of the, of the other crowd of disciples were doubting, but it very well could be, and I'm kind of leaning towards this, that they worshipped him at, at the same time having some doubts. It's kind of like you and me today. You're here worshipping the Lord, but there, there could be some doubts in your heart. And a lot of Christians think, well, that's a bad thing. Don't have any doubts. Actually, doubt proves the existence of faith. It's the flip side. And God is big enough for both of them to simultaneously be happening. Now, how many times, in, even in Matthew's gospel, was Jesus saying to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. Even when the disciples said to him, Increase our faith, he didn't give them a formula to increase the faith. He said, the faith can be as little as a mustard seed. 
Because it's the object of the faith that is important. It is not the faith itself. It's the object, the Lord Jesus Christ being the object of our faith. That's the big deal. So Jesus can take worshiping doubters and change the world. This is what he has been doing. This is what he's doing now. This is what he wants to do in your life. This is what he wants to do in my life. This is what he wants to do amongst our fellowship. Some were worshiping and some were doubting. And this whole idea of faith and doubt, if you think about it, who did Jesus see faith in in the Gospel of Matthew? You've got the centurion, you've got the woman with the issue of blood, you've got various people that, that showed dramatic faith, which was a gift of God, but they're usually not from the group of disciples. In the disciples, that's where you see the doubt. He says to them, don't be anxious. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Trust me. Ask and you'll receive and seek and you will find and knock and the door will be open to you. Believe me. So you got mountain, you got worship, you got faith and doubt coexisting. And the fourth dominant theme is authority. Jesus came to them, verse 18, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Interesting that when Satan took him up on the mountain and said, hey, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms you can see. He could only offer what was on earth. Jesus has all authority, all sovereign authority in heaven and on earth. And, and just go back to the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of that sermon. People were blown away because he was teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes who didn't teach on their own authority. They taught on the authority of those who came before them. And here's Jesus standing up in his own authority. And then you see him having authority over the elements, the wind and the waves. They're obeying his voice. And sickness and death are bowing before him. He has authority over everything. Absolute sovereign authority. Lordship over all. It was given to Christ. Proof of his deity. There are so many proofs that Jesus is God. And here's another. God has exalted him above all, as Philippians 2 tells us. His name above all names is what he has. So mountain and worship and faith and doubt and authority. And then what you see next in a big dominant theme is discipleship. All the way through the Gospel of Matthew is running this, this golden thread of discipleship, of following Jesus. That's the, that's the title of the entire series that we've been looking at for this many years is following the king, being a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Christ. So discipleship is following Jesus. So many people want to make it about something we do in someone's life. I'm going to disciple you. If you're a Christian, you're in a discipling relationship first and foremost with Jesus. Discipleship is following Jesus and he says, go and make disciples. So we're going to help people love and follow Jesus. That we're relationally connected to people in such a way that we point them to Christ. We've seen in Matthew's gospel that to be a disciple is to be like the master. That's what he said in chapter 10, verse 25. In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 49, he said it's to belong to the family of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is like becoming like Jesus and part of his family. But discipleship is a huge, huge theme in Matthew. Now, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And nations is another dominant theme. 
In chapter 8, all the nations were going to come before and, and meet with Abraham. In chapters 24 and 25, about living in the last days, about how all the nations will be gathered for judgment before the throne. The nations is a huge theme. And so Jesus sending them out to the nations wasn't a new idea. It had been a dominant theme. It had been a dominant theme in all of Scripture. What's next? We've got mountain and worship and faith and doubt and authority and discipleship and nations and also baptism. We underscore baptism. We underplay baptism in, in, the, in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's kind of a sad thing because baptism is where you are basically going in front of people and claiming your full allegiance, your full commitment, your full surrender to Jesus. I like to liken it to a wedding ceremony when, when the rings are given. Because the rings are a, a symbol, a token of the love and the commitment that is being made and, and a couple becoming one. And baptism is, is a person saying, my life is Jesus's. He's in control. I'm looking to Him. He has saved me. I want to follow Him. I'm going to follow Him my whole life. This is my intent. It's a, baptism is a statement of intent. Full surrender. Baptism is a big one. Uh, the baptism of Jesus early on in this gospel sets the stage for all of our baptisms. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Interesting, in the name of is in the singular. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's Trinitarian. So the Trinity, even though that word is not here, is a big theme in Matthew's Gospel. Think about the baptism of Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in, in one setting. The Trinity is a big theme in Matthew's Gospel mountain and worship and faith and doubt and authority and discipleship and nations and baptism and the trinity and then jesus says teaching them so teaching is a huge theme a dominant theme in matthew's gospel again going back to the sermon on the mount but even more the entire gospel of matthew is basically organized around the teaching discourses of jesus Blocks of teaching, blocks of preaching from Jesus where he is giving instructions. That's, that's really the whole format of the book. Teaching's big theme. One last one I'll give you, and it's in the last verse. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's presence. God's presence with his people being promised once again. It takes us back to chapter 1, verse 23. His name shall be called, Jesus' name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. God with us. He has promised His presence. These are, are ten huge dominant themes. And so, so this is more than, than a commission. This is a conclusion summarizing some dominant themes in Matthew's Gospel. Mountain, Worship, faith, doubt, authority, discipleship, nations, baptism, the Trinity, teaching, and God's presence. And because it's been all the way through, it, again, it makes the commission all the more strong. C2, though, is, is what I'm going to call a covenant. It's a covenant before it's a commission. 
The covenant concerning God's salvation program, it's not a contract. God doesn't say, hey, by the way, um, I'm going to do a deal with you here. What's next, guys? Well, here's what's next. If you take this deal, here's what you'll be doing. And if you keep, if you keep doing this, well, okay, then I'll give you my authority and, and, and then I'll be with you. It's not what he's saying. It's covenantal. It's not a contract. We would break, if it was a contract, we would break the contract. The contract wouldn't, wouldn't hold. No, it's a covenant. And as such, it really kind of mirrors God's covenant to Ab- with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, where the king identifies himself, says, all authority has been given to me. He instructs his followers. He says, look, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And, I'm, uh, and then he assures his followers, I'm with you always. It's his work. He initiates it. He empowers it. He sustains it. He's doing it. So this, co- this covenant is unilateral. It's like when God walked through, th- in the Old Testament, he walked through the, the, the split pieces of the animal and, and he went a- alone. Usually both parties would go and ratify the covenant. God makes the covenant unilaterally because we would mess it up. His covenant is unilateral. It's unbending. It's one that God started. It's one that he sustains formatted like many of the covenants in the Old Testament. I see it as a covenant. It's a conclusion of these major themes, but it's also a covenant telling us, really shouting out to us that this is God's work. In and through His people, but God's work. And it will succeed because He upholds it. So it is a conclusion summarizing some big themes. It is a covenant of God, unilateral and unending. And then, yes, it is a commission. C3, it's a commission. It's a commission of Christ's church. It's what we are to do in God's strength till Jesus comes or we go to be with Him, whichever comes first. It's interesting that Jesus promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's saying, while you're doing these things that I have set in motion, that I have instructed you to do, while you're doing these things, I am with you always. But the reason why it says to the end of the age is because at the end of the age, at the consummation of all things, when Jesus comes back, no more disciple making. See, there is one imperative in this commission. You can break down the Great Commission and say, I could ask you, how many things are there in here that we should do? And you'll come up with five or four, three things. Here's what I want to show you. First of all, you know, take the conclusion. Ten big themes. You take the covenant, three parts. But the commission, one imperative. There is one thing in these verses that is being... uh, commanded for us to do one thing and that one thing is making disciples it is making disciples you are going you are baptizing you are teaching them but you're go you're going to make disciples that the the only imperative in these verses is make disciples now step back for a moment and, and think with me about this This is the Great Commission, right? Oh yeah, everyone knows the Great Commission. Is it the only one? No. 
not the only commission, not the only version. It is the longest, but it's not the only one. Go with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. In verse 15, and maybe in your Bible, it also has a little heading above verse 14 that says, The Great Commission. Verse 14 says, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. I just want to stop there for a moment and mention that Matthew, bringing out the fact that they worshipped Him, is a really good thing. We all have our doubts. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our unbelief and hardness of heart. And God doesn't want that to be present in our lives, but He knows that He knows that we are our dust. <laughs> he knows our frame. He knows our makeup. And He also knows that He is the one who can make anything good happen in our lives. But just the whole idea of awestruck worship, awestruck wonder, the sheer goodness of God in Christ it is something that, that God generates in the hearts of those who love Him. This whole idea of worshiping Jesus is, is a big deal. But here in Mark, He appears to the eleven. He had rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. They didn't believe those who saw Him after He had risen. And then verse 15. And He said to them, and so here's the great commission, Mark style, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then there's some other things. But he says, go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 verse 47. It's kind of, as Luke says it, it's kind of embedded in, 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 in the setting when he's with his disciples. He has opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says to them, verse 40, 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And, verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's, there's the Great Commission Luke style. And then over in John chapter 20, verse 21, he simply says this. It's, here's how it's recorded. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's the Great Commission John style. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so... I am sending you. So you've got this conclusion with ten themes. You've got this covenant in three parts and a commission with one task. One task. One imperative. Make disciples. God set his mission in motion long ago. And this commission is a call to enter into the process that he began and continues. Every member of Christ's church worldwide is to be a worldwide Christ-worshipping disciple-maker. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are to make disciples. 
Here's the interesting thing, though. Who makes disciples? Ever stop and think about that? Who makes disciples? We got a disciple factory we start? We're going to go to go making disciples. God makes disciples. God makes disciples. And he makes disciples using us as his tools. Using us as his instruments of grace. Relationally connected to people. Helping them know and love and serve Jesus. But we are not like the factory workers. <laughs> we, are, we are his instruments. We, we don't set up our own company to make disciples. We're part of his organization, his, his program that he put in motion. And what, what, what we see kind of like bookends here is, is the authority and the presence. All authority is given to me. So everything he says next is based on that authority, on Christ's authority. And then he says, I'm with you always. I'm going to be strengthening you. I'm going to be providing for you. I'm going to be protecting you. I'm going to be doing the work. So be available. God's grace, really like bookends, cover this commission. Authority and presence. It's like an authority and presence sandwich. And I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the extraordinary alls. The alls of this passage. They're huge. They're huge. This passage really rests on the alls. You've got all authority belonging to Jesus Christ. You've got all nations are to be reached. And then you've got all disciples are identified fully with God in all His triune glory and all of God. And all disciples are to obey all of Jesus' commands. And all disciples are are to be assured of Christ's all-encompassing presence. Look at this. Verse 18, all authority. Verse 19, all nations. And then you've got in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see all of God. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So there's an obedience that needs to take place. In baptism, you've got this, this commitment of your life. But then he says, teach them to observe all that I command you. There's this total obedience that is, is required, that is asked for, that is even enabled by him. Teach all, to observe all that I commanded you. And then he says, I am with you literally all the days. The alls are big here. Basically, we trust in God's alls. We trust in God's alls. It's big because it's God's work. It's beautiful because it's for His unmatched glory. And as a church, as Grace Church of Orange, we want to grow. We want to grow like the early church grew, which is through people making disciples, people becoming believers and following Jesus and growing in Christ. This is not about you know notching your your helmet or your bat and saying, "Oh, I got another convert." That's not what this is. We'll go and make disciples. It's not like scoring touchdowns or hitting home runs. It's process-oriented. We want to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that by making disciples, by entering into God's work of proclaiming the gospel. And when someone comes to faith in Christ, we help them along and we show them what the Word says and we 
Help them even to obey, which sometimes means that someone needs to be corrected. Think about it in your home. What's a home with no correction? Scary. (laughs) I'm going to purposely engage in in gospel living and gospel sharing. Incorporates people into the family of God that is known as, in this location, as Grace Church of Orange. Making disciples by building relationships with people. Proclaiming the gospel. Demonstrating the, the power of the gospel in our everyday lives. We serve the Lord with gladness. Displaying not perfection, but just displaying real people who trust a great God. Real people that sometimes have doubts. But real people who know that the work doesn't rest on them. All of this falls in line with Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Just remember that God makes disciples. He makes disciples. And he makes new people when he makes disciples, not nice people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. The Bible tells us that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has caused that to happen. I like the way C.S. Lewis put this idea of of God making new people, not nice people. He says, we must not suppose that if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. We're not going and trying to make nice people and nice looking people or people that behave just a certain way we are trusting god to change lives by his power that he has to subject everything to himself by the word of his power it's the gospel we preach it's the gospel we preach now this little quote by jeremiah burroughs about the gospel There is so much written about the gospel. The gospel of Christ in general is this. It is the good tidings that God has revealed concerning Christ. More largely it is this. As all mankind was lost in Adam and became the children of wrath, put under the sentence of death, God has thought upon the children of men and provided a way of atonement to reconcile them to himself again. Very simply, Jesus took our place when he went on to the cross. In fact, next week we're looking at the incarnation. We'll be preaching a Christmas-themed sermon. But isn't everything a Christmas-themed sermon? This is a Christmas-themed sermon. What's Christmas? Jesus, incarnate, coming down to earth to save lost sinners. Jesus took our place on the cross and died our death. He substituted himself in our place. He died the death that we deserve because of our sin. And he satisfied the wrath of God. Mercy could now be extended. Grace could now be received. And so here's what happens. 
you know this well if, if you believe. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. It's what's been being preached since the first century. Actually, since before then, but specifically naming Jesus. Obviously, before that, people were believing in the promise of Jesus coming. But you, you believe in Him, you receive forgiveness of all your sins. You have no condemnation. You're not going to be condemned for your sins that sometimes weigh so heavy on your soul, even now after you've come to faith in Christ. They were hung on Christ at the cross. I think sometimes even the process of God making us, conforming us into the image of Christ is freeing our minds from thinking that we're still condemned for, for our sins. No condemnation in Christ. And none of your sins or unworthiness will ever take that away. God is conforming you to the image of Christ if you are a believer in Christ. And you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Amen? Not amen? Amen? Is it good? Just checking. Check the pulse here. Let's talk about making disciples. In the time we have left, I want to talk about making disciples. Where? Where do you do that? Well, it's right here in the text. You go to all nations. Here's the way I put it. Do it anywhere and everywhere, but make sure you start at home base. Anywhere and everywhere. Make disciples, but make sure you start at home base. Don't leapfrog over your household or the church or the community in which you live and go jump on a plane and go to the other end of the globe unless God made it really clear that you're supposed to do that because you are a person living somewhere right now and it's kind of like a pebble putting, getting thrown into a pond. The ripples go outward in concentric circles and it goes from your life in Christ and your household and your small group and the church and the community to the world. So, so don't... Don't think that making disciples is somehow divorced from the household that you live in or the community or even the block that you live in. God, there's a reason why you live where you live. And it could have been because you just liked the houses on that block, but God had a bigger purpose because there's people living in those houses that he wants you to reach with the gospel. No, we just wanted to go there because we really liked it. Well, God sent you there. You're a missionary now, and you're on that block or on in that complex for a reason. But let me mention just something about family discipleship. If, if being a disciple is a follower of Christ and discipleship is following Jesus, family discipleship is following Jesus in the context of the household in which you live. A lot of Christians forget all about this. But husbands, if you're a husband, you must establish yourself and in many cases, reestablish yourself in your wife's eyes as your wife's loving servant and protector and provider. If you're going to fulfill the Great Commission, you need to do that. And parents, if you're a parent, you must establish yourself, or in some cases, reestablish yourself in your children's eyes, because sometimes we think we're doing such a great job, but no one got it. 
must establish yourself, or in many cases reestablish yourself, in your children's eyes as their primary teacher of the faith, as their primary Christian educator. Because it goes out in concentric circles. Don't leapfrog over the circles that God wants you to make disciples in first and foremost. How do you make disciples? What does it take? Well, much more on this in coming months, but let me mention five things to you about disciple-making, what it takes. First and foremost, it takes... You're wearing a watch? Are you wearing a watch? Got your phone with you? That's your watch now? Okay. It takes your time. Got a schedule? Got something going on today? Anything going on this week? Making disciples takes your time that word go it assumes you are it's going going make disciples there's all these ing words going and baptizing and teaching you're making disciples it assumes you are you're focused on a task making disciples real ones which means you're going to say no to some good things so that you can go and make disciples so it takes your time you got to invest it wisely. Everyone's got the same amount of time. Some use it better than others. I find the busiest people get the most done. Number two, it takes your life. It takes your life. First Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives because you had become very dear to us. That's you in my life. That's the people in this room in your life. That you have people in your heart, they are very dear to you, so you want to give not just the gospel, but your life. And when you do that, you know, think about the baptizing part. That's total surrender. That's saying my whole life is in Jesus' hands. You know what's interesting? I think there's a lot of followers of Christ who call themselves followers of Christ, but what they've really done is they've invited Jesus to follow them in their life. A lot of people in American Christian churches who are basically saying, I'm a follower of Christ, and what they've really done is say, Jesus, you can follow along. Now, don't get too close. Don't get in my space, but you can follow along with me. And they think they're followers of Christ. You give your life, you're going to disclose things about yourself. Not, you're not going to only give the good parts. You're going to do what God says. You're going to give of yourself. You're going to disclose. You're going to share. You're going to obey Him. You're going to confess your sins. You're going to repent. You're going to serve. You're going to give. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your life. And, and number three, it takes the gospel. You have to have the gospel in there. Oh, I'm making disciples because I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know people. Not if you don't get to the gospel. The gospel does its work in those who believe. That's what 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says. You've got to teach the truth. You've got to proclaim the gospel, the real message of Jesus. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your life. It's going to take the gospel. And it's going to take love, number four. Love. That's not a weak word. That's a very strong word. Jesus working through you. Jesus loving people through you. He says, teach them to obey all that I command. You know what that means? He means he's calling for total obedience. So if you love Jesus, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. You'll forgive people. You'll reconcile. You don't just pursue your individual well-being and spiritual growth or even your family's uh, well-being and spiritual growth. You're going to serve the community and you're going 
You'll, you'll want to evangelize unbelievers. Think about it. If you were escaping a burning building, if you were escaping a sinking ship, would you really just go in good conscience all by yourself? Leaving your family, leaving your friends, leaving total strangers? No, grab someone. Take them with you. There is unity, by the way. Uh, Do you realize that Jesus didn't say, now, John, come here. Let's have a little meeting. We're going to do one-on-ones with all the disciples. Little exit interviews. No. He brought them all together, just like we're all together. And he says, this is what we're all going to do, and I'm going to be in charge. Unity. That's why unity in the church is so important. Not so people will feel all good about everybody getting along. And it doesn't mean that everyone thinks the same way. It means everyone working together for Jesus and the gospel. By the way, this fellowship takes big steps in the right direction all the time regarding that. Model being a body of Christ together. I love it. Last one, five. You want to make disciples? It's going to me it's going to take intent it's going to make take intent if you want to you will do we don't do what we don't want to do i say it before but everyone who wants jesus and will have jesus now there's a lot of theological god stuff that's going on in the background that god sets up but here's the deal you want to follow jesus you will you want to make disciples you will you you don't you won't it's, it's that simple. If you want to, you will do. There's all the ING words here. Going, baptizing, teaching. I love how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That was his intent. So that's what he did. You have to decide right now what you want to do or you won't do anything jesus said i have all authority jesus said i am with you always so this isn't just something we do for other people this is this is a god-ordained god-sustained process he's the authority he is with us and we go in his power all right i'm looking at the clock and i realize something at this point i think it is only right for me to put on my big boy pants and humbly and boldly land this plane so i will So um, let's pray. Lord God, apart from you, we are, as Herman Melville said, dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. And it's very easy to feel overwhelmed with a commission such as yours. But we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. And only you know how you will do this, this, this mission of yours. But may, may you be pleased to use us as we stand back in awestruck worship of you. And may the gospel be magnificent in us and through us for your glory. Amen.